0: Peter Alcoholic. Hey, Peter. Um, Just a heads up, I was telling Chris earlier, this is the most difficult session of the whole weekend uh, because we had lunch. Probably smoked cigarettes, which we shouldn't, but we smoked cigarettes. And we talked and we sat around. So, during the next two sessions, if you feel a need to get up and walk around, and that's cool. If you start to meditate on me while I'm speaking, it's really okay. Um, You know, if you need to do some knee bends in the back of the room or something to get the blood going or get up for a bunch of calls, just make it light and easy. Um, If we get through this one, the next one will be a little bit better, but this is always the toughest session. Uh, I've done enough of these to watch tables fall asleep right in front of me. And we try to pretend we're not sleeping. Uh, Yeah. Uh, so before we get going with, with uh, a little of uh, eight and nine here, I, I wanted to share something out of our book, In a Vision for You, and it says this, <clears throat> for most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. It means release from care, boredom, and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good but not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They were but memories. Never could we recapture the great moments of the past. There was an insistent yearning to enjoy life as we once did in a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable us to do it. There was always one more attempt and one more failure. The less people tolerated us, the more we withdrew from society, from life itself. As we became subjects of King Alcohol, shivering denizens in his mad realm, afraid, inhabitants, angry, uh, in this this place where, where, if you could picture someone who's, this little child who's frightened by this big boogeyman That's what I see when I read that. It goes on to say, the chilling vapor that is loneliness settled down. It thickened ever becoming blacker. Some of us sought out sordid places hoping to find understanding and companionship and approval. Momentarily we did. Then would come the oblivion and the awful awakening to face the hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration and despair unhappy drinkers who read this page will understand it. Uh, I get it, I identify with that in trying to recapture that first innocent drunk I had and I found myself in the bottom of a barrel over and over again, and when I've learned, like many of us, the trapdoors have trapdoors. Wondering when it's gonna be okay, when am I going to get some sort of control, a handle on this, and getting sober seemed drastic. I'll just modify, regulate, I'll do something different, I'll I'll go on marijuana maintenance, I'll I'll just eat pills, I won't drink, I'll drink, I won't eat pills, I won't do narcotics, I'll just, I'll be occasional crack smoker, I'll smoke crack on the weekends. Uh, I never did that stuff but you know we do all of these things and it just it just won't end and now the majority of folks uh like us uh die from alcoholism very few of us make it in here and I, i i was handing a frightening statistic a number of years ago that more alcoholics commit suicide sober than when we're drinking because we just can't do life without this kind of uh, uh, information and then transformation. Another reason why I read that, because it made me uh, uh, think of, you know, you, you, we work with our big book, and then you, you, know, you read how it works a hundred times, then you read it again, and you say, oh my God, it means something completely different today. Or when did they put that in here? Uh, like one of the lines were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. I read that a million times, and one day it just, it just I paid attention to it. That that's my condition. I'm 100% hopeless apart from divine help. And that little uh, couple of paragraphs uh, on a vision for you. Not only am I suffering from alcoholism with the hideous four horsemen and the turmoil and the daily humiliations and degradations and trying to cover up and front and pretend everything's okay then i got to a place where i knew you knew and i don't i don't pretend anymore this is what i am so i try to hide out i remember one time getting on the subway and I was homeless, and I wouldn't pay for the subway. I'd, I'd sneak on the train, Mr. Big Shot, because a dollar for a token was a dollar towards alcohol, so I'm going to sneak on. And it's really embarrassing when a police officer is lecturing you. As I'm a grown man. I'm 28 years old. about sneaking on a train. But I was on the train one day, and um, uh, I hadn't bathed or shaved in a while, and I had a hoodie over my head. And um, I'm sitting, and I'm staring at the floor because we're good at that when we're active. We stare at our shoes. And I hear... Here, the bells. The train stops. They hear the bells, and the door closes. And I hear what sounded like a, a uh, this lady with a couple little toddlers, little girls, and they happen to sit opposite me. If you've been on a New York City train, they're, they're kind of bench seats, and you face each other. And I can't look up. I'm embarrassed to look up. I'm just staring at my at my shoes and. Um, A couple of stops went by, and I just kind of peeked up a little, and there was a a woman there, maybe in her 30s, uh, with two little uh, daughters. I'm assuming they were daughters. That's how they were looking at me. And I was more than mortified by this or humiliated because I kept thinking, I could do better than this, I'm better than this. But what they're looking at is a bum. And I've become something I never thought I'd become. I'm literally a bum. Sneak on a train. I don't bathe. I don't eat. I just hustle money to drink, eat pills, and hopefully die by midnight. And they were looking at this. And it was one of those aha moments. But I couldn't get out. And when I read this recently, I thought of a story uh, something that happened to me, to tell you a story. Um, years ago, I was hanging out in Manhattan a lot, and I had this, this car that I didn't buy. My dad had to buy me a car. I was like maybe 24 or 25. And he knew I needed a vehicle, so he got me this secondhand car. And I trashed it immediately like I do everything. And uh, I was dating this young lady from Manhattan. And uh, we were dating, but we were running partners. There's no dating when you're active. You have a running partner. Uh, I love you, you love me, but if there's one bag of drug left, it's mine, and you have to go, you know, you know how that goes. (laughs) I love you, but I won't tell you where I hit it. Um, um, And she went into this store to get something, and I'm double parked. Now, if anyone's familiar with Manhattan, there used to be an old Bonnie's Bonnie's on 17th Street, and I think it's, like 6th Avenue, it's crowded, Chelsea area, and I double park because I don't care. You don't double park, I'm double park. And out of this this building shows this guy who I knew from the neighborhood who had a really bad rep, he was dangerous. And I knew he didn't like me. And I found out the girl I was dating was his ex-girlfriend. And he comes out and he's standing by the doorway with a brown paper bag. Now, if you know anything about the streets, we can hide alcohol in there, but usually a brown paper bag, you're usually hiding a weapon in there. And my friend's nodding his head. I knew you looked familiar. Um, So that's what he was doing. And so I'm trying to motion to her to hurry up. And this took place in about 10 seconds. And she caught his, you know, uh, she saw him and hopped in the car and I pulled away. And I literally mean this. The guy gets out. He can't catch us. He kneels down on one knee like military, and stop firing shots at my car. Now, it was obviously a a low-caliber gun. It was like a 22 or something. It wasn't a big gun because someone told me the way the bullet holes in the car, they would probably ricocheting around the car. So I got to get home, and I'm still living with my dad. Now, what my dad would do with me was check my car the next morning when I got home. My younger brothers were driving. He never checked on them ever. But with me, he would check. So he'd look for my car and I knew this. Um, So I parked about four blocks away because what had happened, the rear uh, window was blown out. Uh, The passenger right side window was blown out and there were holes in my trunk in the roof of the car. And I know he can't see this because he'll shoot me. And uh, so I parked about four blocks away and the next morning, there's a knock on my door to wake up. And where's your car? And he was angry. I said, there were no part, my head's on sideways at this point. You know, when you come to the next morning, it's like, I can't even think. And I said, there were no spots, so I parked down the block. And he knew I was lying, he says, okay. He comes back banging on the door, your car's not down the block. I checked all four corners. So I don't remember, I'll go get it. Now I'm in panic mode. And he warned me, if I go to my car and don't come home, like, bring the car back, then don't come home. I turned the corner, and he started with, oh, my God, and then it got really bad. I mean, the language and the anger coming out of this guy was scary. He had, back in his day, a loud voice that was very intimidating. And the neighbors came out, he was so loud. And when I told him what happened, first he was furious with me. And this is what happens. When we went back in the house, when he calmed down, he asked me questions like this. Do you know the guy who did it? I says, yeah, I got a pretty good idea who did it. He says, this is what I want you to do. He says, this week, we're going to go to New York with a couple of my friends. I just want you to point him out and walk away. My brothers heard this and went in and shut the whole thing down, the ripple effect. My dad was about to do something because someone affected, someone hurt his son. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing a lot of wrong things. I brought about this myself. But he went past that that someone hurt his son, so his code was, we get revenge now. Now, if that would have happened, a lot of bad things would have came out of that. This is what I do. In the grip of my alcoholism, I bring people in. I take about nine hostages. In his mind, even though I was wrong, I was right now because I'm Victor's son, and I need to fix this situation. No one's going to hurt my family like that. It would have been catastrophic. And thank God for my brothers who pretty much told my dad, stop, and they were angry with me. This is his fault. He shouldn't even be living here, they told my dad. They had had it with me. That's king alcohol. That's terror, frustration, bewilderment, and despair. But not for me. For the family members who were involved in a drive-by shooting who did nothing. Because there's no such thing as every family's dysfunctional. Who has a functional family? We all have our stuff. But I won't get up to a podium and say come from a dysfunctional family. Some of us have horrific families. I've heard the stories. The business I'm in, I hear it all the time but they're also not here to defend themselves, so I can't do that here. So my family, we had our stuff, but it didn't warrant my type of behavior. Nor did it warrant someone taking revenge on someone to protect me, who was, who was just, just doing what I do. So my family was suffering from alcoholism, And they're not alcoholic. In a family afterwards, at the bottom of the first page, it says years of living with an alcoholic will uh, make any child or wife neurotic. The whole family has to some extent become ill. My alcoholism has infected family members. My grandparents were impacted by this. My uncles and aunts were impacted by this. I remember one Sunday morning, I knew my grandmother and grandfather would go to, to Mass on Sunday morning, and I was in Manhattan on a three-day drunk. I was filthy, and I needed money, and I was still on the drunk, and I'm thinking, where am I going to get money? So I said, Sunday morning. I lived in the house my grandmother was living in at the time with my grandfather. We lived upstairs. She lived downstairs. And the, the back door in the, in the backyard... The lock was never fixed, and it, we weren't worried about someone breaking, and if you're Jimmy the lock, you just walk right in. Everyone knew about it. So did I. <laughs> so I, I was on Canal Street in Lower Manhattan, and I make my way to my grandmother's house, and I'm looking at the time, I so she's definitely in mass right now. I know there's money and jewelry in the house. Now, I'm not thinking I'm about to steal from my grandparents who brought me up when my mom died, who provided me with everything I needed, who loved us unconditionally. They were good folks. They came from the other side with nothing and built a the life. They were good people. But my alcoholism doesn't give me a seat of compassion or integrity or dignity or anything good. I know there's money in Julian, and I'll fix it. I will pay any price to, uh, 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 tomorrow, seek comfort right now. And that's what I was doing. And so I'm in the I go into the backyard and I'm Jimmy in the, you know, shaking the door to for for it to open, and it opens, and my grandmother's standing there. We were both surprised to see each other. <laughs> my grandfather was sick, he wasn't feeling well. So they decided to stay home and not go to mass. And she invited me in. She wanted to know if I'd like a cup of coffee. When you're in that condition, you can't even look at anything but alcohol. almost puked at thinking drinking coffee right now. And then she invited me out. And when I left, I had ugly language under my breath that she asked me to leave. I didn't know. My dad says if he comes around, don't let him in the house. My dad was getting some al on muscles. I didn't know it. Things like that I hated, but part of the things that saved my life, they were raising the bottom. And I left there disgruntled and, and just how I lost sight. I was trying to break in to steal And I went about my business. How, how do I fix those things? How do I fix it with my grandparents? They know why I was there. I stole before How do I fix it with my dad and my brothers who I almost brought them into some serious stuff? I stole from my brothers They had little part-time jobs after school at one point. Uh, One was a waiter. You get all this tip money and keep it in a drawer, and I'd borrow it like it was a Chase Bank or something. I mean, how do you embarrass him? How do I fix this? By just saying I'm sorry? Yeah. There's a long period of reconstruction ahead. A remorseful mumbling won't fill the bill at all, a book says. And by me being sober, they're happy I'm sober, but that doesn't pay the bill. All I have to do today is stay sober, and and that's it. Sobriety is not enough here. I owe. Now, untreated, I'm going to say, I'm going to talk, I should say, about making amends one day. When the time is right or I'm in the mood, I'll get back there and fix it. In the meantime, I'm sober, and I go to all the parties, and I'm not getting in trouble. That's good. But maybe I need to sit down with them and understand that although the wounds have closed, the scars never go away. Some of us I have some scars on my body. It's healed, it's gone, but there's a scar there. When I look at it, oh yeah, I remember. There's no transparency. It's the elephant sitting in the living room that no one wants to talk about. And then they don't have to, I have to. I have to fix that. And the men's is not only repairing the broken fence, but changing so I don't break any more fences, yeah? How How do I do that? On my own power, I can't. On my own power, I'm probably already drunk in AA. I'll stay here and leave. But with God's power, something happens. And as I'm moving through the steps, I'm starting to experience this this thing called God, this power called God, that's starting to do for me what I can't do for myself. And part of that package is giving me what starts with the seed of compassion and becomes compassion. With the seed of integrity and becomes integrity. Where I have to go back. I cannot stay away from this. I need to face the music. I need to go, if you will, in amends with hat in hand. And I'm willing to hear you say, get out and never come back again. You could take your AA, your big book, and your men's. I don't want to see. I'm willing to take that kind of hit. Because when I was out on the street, I was beaten up plenty of times. I was arrested plenty of times. I kept going back. I took that. And maybe a family member just wants to just unload on me. I can handle some of that. My book says I'm not supposed to be servile or scraping. But I could take a little heat. I'm a big boy. I need to go back there. And so as I come out of seven and, and pray and meditate on, on some of the things I'm, I, in six and seven, I begin to make this list. And it was really important that I prayed and meditated before I wrote that list. Albeit a lot of it's going to come out of my fourth step. Our book talks about that. But there are things that weren't on my fourth step that amends are gonna show up, and there's a lot of things that are gonna come on my step list that I had no resentment with. Names are gonna fly out. It's great to have conversation with other AAs about amends because we shake it up a little bit and say, I just thought of an amends, I owe." So I write this list. Now the first time out of the gate, there was, I made probably 200 direct amends the first time out of the gate. If you're here a while, and let me speak for myself, my experience has been this. The longer I'm here, living this life, go through the work, there should be maybe a couple of names on that list. I'm not harming anyone anymore. I should be getting better. I shouldn't be going through this work after like 34 years and having 300 people on an amends list. I'm doing something wrong. But the first time, there was a lot. It was a lot of heavy lifting, and God gave me the strength to do that. And I remember I had to see my, both my brothers and my dad. They were closest to me and saw it all. After that were my grandparents and my extended family. But my dad and my brothers saw it all. You know, the car wrecks, the arrests, all of it, like many of us in here. And it's interesting, when I was out there, I hated them, and I get sober, and I realize I need them with me. They became incredibly important to to me in my life. And how did I screw this up so bad? Again, we live life forward and understand a lot of it backwards. And my sponsor, who never uh, edited my amends, said, don't do this, you got to do that. He never, I never got, if you did this, this is fine. I just never did. Never, maybe, I have to make him now that. When we break the amends into columns like that, my sponsors, I told me, God will determine who you're gonna go see, not you. So I prayed, pardon me, for willingness to go to every single person and institution on my eight step list, everyone. Whether all walks of life, lawbreakers or, or, or good citizens, my job was to willingness, go to God for the willingness to see everyone on the list, to approach everyone on that list. Step nine is gonna say, except when to do so would injure them or others. Not for me to discern right here, ever actually. But my sponsor did offer me a really good suggestion. He says, you've probably said I'm sorry to your dad and your brothers forever. We're not doing that here, but let the walk be your sermon first. And let's see what God has. So I pumped the brakes on seeing my dad and I got my job back and I started to do what I do in AA. I showed up for work early and left late. And when I worked, I worked. Some of it were easy days where there's not much work to do, sometimes it was heavy lifting and I worked, but I worked and sometimes I didn't feel like going to work. And sometimes I wanted to go on late, sometimes I wanted to leave early, but I went early and stayed late. It's interesting when you're sober and you're employed. If your payday happens to be Friday morning, it's interesting how the following Friday, I have money from last payday in my pocket, this is unbelievable. It's like I discovered some sort of, you know, Cure for cancer or something. And uh, so I'm walking the walk. And my dad started to get used to see me be showing up at work at like 7 a.m. He's an old timer. He would be hanging out in the office with some of his uh, friends at like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, having coffee or the little diner across the street, they used to call it the hole in the wall, and they'd be in there, you know, all power all the old timers, a lot of truck drivers, uh, longshoremen, and uh, I started to show up, and it became this thing where, when's the kid coming in? And seven o'clock I'd be there and I'd have coffee with them and listen to these, to these guys tell their war stories and, and just talk about the street and growing up, and, and I would leave late. And then after doing this a while, um, I'm praying and praying for the willingness to go to any lens, the willingness to make amends, the willingness to go to any lens, things like that. And I had been taking money out of my paycheck and putting it in an envelope to pay back my dad. I mean, if I, if I hit lottery tomorrow for a million dollars, I'd probably still owe him a few more. You know, it's like that. But I put money away. And I had a dollar amount on how much I have to start, how to make a payment plan with him. If I put all the lawyers together, all the, it's, it's, it's thousands. But I didn't have that, so I started. And I had a chunk of money in this envelope, and uh, I remember going to see my dad, and I said to him, can I have a few minutes of your time alone? And my dad being my dad, yes. And They get up and we went and sit down and talk somewhere else. And I go into my, uh, coat pocket uh, and I take out an envelope. what's that? And I begin the approach without dragging anyone through the mud and revisiting those uncomfortable scenes unless they ask me to. I gotta be considerate, I need to be hard on myself but considerate of others. Maybe some things you don't even wanna go there anymore. I can't walk in like a bull in a china shop saying, remember that time? he knew what, what I was about to do and as I took the money out and I began the approach and uh, talked about my life that he was seeing and how I wanted to make this right I'll do anything, he stopped me. And I remember he put up his hand and he said to me the following, all I ever wanted was my son back. That was it. And I said, it's, I can't Take this money, it's your money. He said, I don't want money. He said, You don't have to do that. So I gave that money to charity. I dispersed it to a lot of different charities. I was putting extra money in the baskets in AA because it's not my money. And that was beginning, the beginning of a new relationship with my dad, albeit there was some more healing that had to be done, but now my job really started because I just made the approach on this new life and how I want to change and make things right. I'll do, what can I do to make this right? Now I need to show up. There were times my dad liked still, still likes Sunday dinner. It's a big thing in, 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 in my culture. Sunday, two o'clock, the world stops for pasta. <laughs> My dad's 84, that still happens. Now there were times where there was a football game on. My Giants are playing. It's a playoff game. And my dad says, what are you doing Sunday? Come by, we're having some dinner. I can't say the Giants are on because the Giants aren't making my amends. And they're not keeping me sober. So I go to his house. And I spend time, I need to show up, suit up and show up. And little by slowly, this new relationship has happened. It's a number of years now. You know, I remember going to my brothers, my, my youngest brother, who's the biggest of the three of us, big strappy kid, had a meltdown, he began to weep. He said, I thought I was never gonna have an older brother. I thought you were gonna die. My middle brother was very, very stoic. He, he, he didn't trust me for about two years. Another story about the, 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 the effect it had on people, my alcoholism has on people. I was sober a little while. I was back home in New York, I didn't own a car yet. And um, taking public transportation to work or getting a ride to and from work, it was like that. I was saving up money to get a car. And uh, I wanted to go out one night uh, with some sober folks. And um, I, I just started uh, courting this, this woman. And I asked my brother, would I be able to borrow your car? And he said, where are you going? And I explained to him, a bunch of AA's getting together, and there's this young lady I like to take with me, and what time are you coming home? He didn't say, oh, that's wonderful. What time are you coming home? I said, you tell me. He says, you can have the car back by midnight because I need it tomorrow. I said, done. He reluctantly gave me the keys. Now, this is where it got interesting I was like Cinderella, I got to be back by midnight or I turn into a pumpkin, right? So um, there's no parking spots at all on the block. So I'm circling around, circling around, circling around, I'm on the corner, a spot happened to open up. My brother lived in the middle of the block, I parked there, walked to his house, dropped the keys in a mailbox, and went home. I had about a two-mile walk to get home. My phone rings the next morning. I can't repeat what he said, but it was, where is my blanking car? And before I could explain this, I knew you were going to do this. I knew it. Where are you right now? I said to him, there were no spots. I didn't get angry. If you walk out of your house, make a right, go to the corner of your car sitting right there. I get a call about 15 minutes later. Okay, I got the car and he hung up the phone. That's where my middle brother was with me. Now, there's a part of me that says, how dare he talk to me that way? And then the spirit says, you burned this kid for like 10 years. And he loaned you his car. He went right back to how it used to be. That's how I impact people. And for me, saying sobriety is enough. It is not enough. It doesn't pay the bill. I had to get out there and repair this, amend it by changing. And the only power allowed me to change was this power call God." Now, it's not on my time frame as to when these things are going to happen. I'm setting out to make amends. Some people I make appointments with. Some I just, you know, you see them in the mall or something. And i got to be really careful when I get to step nine that I don't decide to call up an old girlfriend or contact her on social media, because on social media you can basically find almost everyone, and say, hey, remember me. Because she might be in a relationship And they might be on that thing together, on their laptop together, and there's a message from good old me. Remember the time when I did this? And the boyfriend and husband said, well, who is this guy? You never told me about this. And then I start a problem. So I need to be really mindful of that. I can't just walk right in there and say, here I am. So there's a pause on this stuff. And some I can never go to because I'll cause more harm in so doing. It doesn't mean I don't owe the universe an amends or I don't owe people like that an amends. So what I had to do with some of these ladies that I was inappropriate with or selfish with or wasn't a gentleman with, um, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous and there's a lot of women who walk in new and vulnerable. And what I do if I see them before the wolves get to them, I say, hi, my name is Peter, that's Mary and Donna and Peggy and they'll come over because you ladies got us guys beat by this, by a million miles, you guys circle the wagons. Us guys, we got to do a better job with new people coming in the door. We're like, hey, how you doing? The ladies, especially the old timers, they circle the wagons. No one's getting on this little girl. So that's what I do. I'm married now. One month. It's unbelievable. Um, oh. Marion gets, thanks. Um, yeah, I'm still in the <laughs> Marion's over thirty-two years, so when, when the youngins walk in the door uh, and they, they got that deer in the headlights look, um, Marion, she, she's got to be new. And Marion goes with some of her little girls, and they get them, and they sit down, and done. It's really important. So there's ways to put this to give back. Even when I'm in church or in the supermarket and things like that, when I'm away from AA, it's really about practicing principles and treat his, treating women like with respect and dignity and not being a dirtbag outside of AA. It's that important to me. Um, how could I, how can I enter the world of the spirit as our book talks about when I'm still living in the past? How could I enter the world of the spirit when I'm still driven by voices of the past and behaviors and attitudes by the past? How can I enter the world of a spirit traveling heavy? I can't do it. So as far as mechanics go, I might be in 10, 11, and 12, but in reality, I still have a truckload of amends to make, and I haven't even made the approach yet. Do I believe that completing amends has anything to do with me drinking again or not? So I have a lot of amends on the list, perhaps, that I could be making, and I won't cause harm in so doing. It's some financial restitution. I can make the best deal possible. Some people, I just need to sit down and say, hey, we need to talk about that time. Chris talked about it with that friend, and I need to clean this up with you. It's as simple as that. But I'm attending a ball game or a soccer game or something's on Netflix or another workshop to get more information, which I have enough, but I don't, don't want to go and knock on anyone's door. I'll get to it starting Monday. As soon as I'm done with this 30th workshop this year I'm attending. That kind of stuff. I need, I need to get out there and clean this up because for me, it's like if I don't complete amends without causing more harm... What's waiting for me is another drink, because I will never enter the world of the Spirit. How can I live now knowing how I lived then? See, back in step three, it's, it's interesting, uh, when we make this decision to turn uh, everything over to God, our thinking and my actions, my life. It's a tremendous vision for me of what's about to happen if I agree to turn it over to God. Because there's times where I'm going to make amends and I don't know how this is going to play out, but I'm going to surrender this to God. I'm going to turn it over to God. He's going to do what he wants with it. Tremendous promise, a tremendous vision in doing a third step. And it can be a great nightmare if I don't. Because if I don't do a third step, I can't do four, five, six, seven, eight, nine and enter the world of the spirit. What's going to happen to me, I'm just going to go back to doing what I've always done and eventually Drunk. And to drink is to die, my book says. That middle brother uh, I I just mentioned, he came around. And it started off little by slowly. And then he would invite me over for dinner. And then we start to talk on the phone. And then one day, uh, you know the old, remember the old answering machines we used to have back in the newcomers have no clue what I'm talking about. You see the little beeps, you got three messages, they love me, and then you come home, no beeps, nobody loves me, and uh, one message was from this brother, and his bro, when you get a chance, give me a call, so I call, I'll never forget this, he was calling me, he was, he was, his wife and him were breaking up, and uh, he wanted to talk to me about how to get through this. And that was when it opened up. He was stoic, he was hurt, he wasn't trusting me, but I followed my sponsor's directions and that was the walk is the sermon, not the talk. And then he called me up because he needed a shoulder to lean on and some insight on how to walk through this. He just assumed because I got past this monster called addiction, that I would have some insight on how he can get through the hurt he was feeling in losing a marriage. Yeah, And since then, uh, my brothers and I, and my dad are you know inseparable, uh, not codependent, but inseparable. It's a big difference. Uh, it's a pretty cool relationship. And what's happened with my dad um, you know, he was always there for me. I'll turn this over to Chris in a moment. Um, the, uh, he's 84. And that guy I knew growing up uh, is gone. He shows up every once in a while. I can tell by how he smokes a cigarette. You, and, and he kind of he gets a little swagger back in him once in a while. And, and that's the old guy. Uh, but he's 84. And um, sometimes... Uh, whether it's on the phone or when he's down in Florida, I meet him once a week for coffee early in the morning, um, sometimes for dinner uh, on a Sunday, but um, sometimes he'll ask me the same question three times or four times or I'll tell the same story, and then he's back to, you know, it's some of that going on. And at my wedding, he had called me, uh, he took a couple of falls, and he needs a walker. My dad was about, you know, maybe 6'1 in his day, and 2'20, uh, and he was just, muscle, he was just had a presence, and he's not there anymore, he needs a walk, and I remember him calling me up, and uh, he asked me, he said, <sighs> he said, would you mind if I came to your wedding uh, with a walker, would that be okay, And I says, there's going to be AAs there. We've seen and done it all. Come on in. Um, Because he felt embarrassed by it. He didn't want to embarrass me. And he suited up and showed up with a worker. No one really paid much attention to it. In fact, here's what happened. And this this is my... Pardon me. My gratitude to AA, all of you, um... It was a destination wedding, a lot of people flew into Florida, and we were at this really nice resort in Fort Lauderdale, a lot of folks stayed three, four, five days down there. And my dad uh, was sitting with me on Sunday morning, the day after the wedding, we were having coffee, and he's done this a few times. But he said to me, he says, your friends, meaning you guys, he said, incredible. He says, every one of them saw me, stopped me, gave me a kiss on the cheek, sat down and talked to me. He says I can't believe that they lived the way they lived like you did, that they look so good. <laughs> he, said, he said, they're spotless. My dad' appearance was everything. They're spotless. He says, the woman came, sat down, kissed me on the cheek. Mr. Marinelli, so nice to see you. We're so glad to be here. Talked about them. T- listened to me. talk about my aches and pains. The guys came over. This is, I said, that's why I keep going back. But here was an outsider, if you will, praising us, just going about life. With we, I didn't have respect, and we learned respect. We learned integrity. We learned dignity. We learned some humility, and we passed that on just by going about our day. It's not a pretend anymore. It's just who we be. And an outsider got that in neon lights and had to say, my dad's not the type of guy to just offer praise for the heck of it. It's, it you have to earn it. And that's what he was doing. And he's been doing it. He's still talking about the wedding, it blows my mind about your friends, meaning my friends. Alcoholics Anonymous. Where the broken get fixed and we walk head up and shoulders square. Not better than, not less than, we just walk. And all I have to do is follow a simple set of instructions per my sponsor. God watching the whole thing, and then something happens from the inside out. I don't need to pretend. I don't need to tell you I'm sober and I'm working the steps. I don't need to do any of that. You will see at my walk. My grand sponsor, or my, yeah, my grand sponsor. He was out of Colorado. Chris remembers him. He'd walk in the room with a flannel shirt, maybe some overalls. He had blue eyes that were this big, and he'd walk in the room, and for some reason, you just want to get around this guy. He didn't have to have a big book, he'd have to talk about the steps. You can talk about a football game, a baseball game, and you knew this guy was operating from someplace else. And that man was Don Pretz. I call him the godfather of AA. There was just something about him, it was the soul was awakened. And if you ever got a hug from him, you didn't want to leave it. He didn't have to pontificate or convince someone how he did his fourth step, or he did perfect amends. He didn't do any of that. He just walked. It was just the Spirit. And that's that's available to all of us because it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. So as of right now, I don't know what will happen an hour from now or next week, but as of right now, I'm clean on amends. But I, that's delicate, because I don't know what's going to happen an hour from now. Tomorrow we go to the airport. Anything's possible. <laughs> um, you really want to see how spiritual you are. Travel in airports a lot. It's, it's a whole nother thing. I think it's one big ex- science experiment by the government to, taste, to test patience and tolerance. I don't know what's going on. There. Um, but as of now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm clear. Uh, so uh, maybe that's why I feel like I'm traveling light. There was a story of uh, this gentleman who was very, very religious. Did all the things his religion asked him to do and told everyone about it. But devout, devout religious person. Even pompous about it. And he wasn't feeling well and goes to the doctor. And the doctor does, you know, a whole bunch of tests on the guy. And he sits this this person that says, uh, Bill... um, I got bad news. You have a few months to live, make arrangements. This guy's irate. And he goes back to his pastor and he says, What kind of God is this? I've been doing everything the church told me to do. I'm a devout Christian. How dare this God, how dare this church? And he walks away from God in church. And he falls asleep one night and has a dream. And in this dream, he's walking across this big field to the edge of of this, this cliff, this mountain, and he's carrying this huge heavy cross. And what he's saying to himself after all I've done for the church, for my Christianity, not only they give me a debt sentence, now they get a cross on my back. How dare this God do this? But he looks around and he sees all these other people carrying the same cross, singing hymns. Joyfully carrying the cross. He says, this is ridiculous. He hates God now. As he's walking, he sees a little barn on the side of the road. He goes in there and he finds a little sword. And he starts chopping down the, 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 the cross that he has to carry, where it's manageable, Now he thinks they got over on God, the church, the doctors, and all these other fools who are carrying a cross and singing until they get to the edge of a mountain. And they have to cross over to eternity, paradise. And all these people lay down their cross. It reaches the other side, and they walk over. And his is too small to make it over, and he's stuck exactly where he's at, in his own stuff. What Alcoholics Anonymous allowed me to do, first it says you're going to carry a heavy, a lot of heavy lifting here. And we're going to force feed you some humility to where it hurts. And God's going to prune the entire tree so you say there's nothing left. He knows there's a lot more to go. And it's going to hurt, and I want to push it away, and I don't want to go to that meeting tonight, and I don't want to hear another inventory, and I don't want to write another inventory, and I don't want to pray today. But you're going to do it until It hurts. And then one day you'll wake up and realize how free you are. That the past is something we talk about for point of reference to help another drunk, but you're not going to live there anymore. I am not the guy who wrote his first fourth step. I am not that guy anymore. Thank you, God. I'm far from perfect. There's a lot of cracks in this song, but I am not that guy. When I wrote it, I was. And that's just getting a little information and having a transformation. Not being programmed by a program, but enlightened by a program. And understanding the difference between a fellowship, a program, and the service I get asked to do. At the beginning, they're separate. There's fellowship, there's service, and there's recovery. And as we wake up, they all blend. It all becomes one movement. Because I'm being led by the soul now, cleaning up the wreckage of my past. was key? It was vital. It unlocked the gates of hell for me, where I'm able to stand free. Our book talks about free at last. And I don't want to quote where that originally came from, a great man. You notice all our great spiritual people from from 2,000 years ago to currently have been killed? Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Jesus, I mean, I don't know what. It's very interesting. People stand for something we need to get rid of great people. But we get to stand free at last. Where that monster, not cured, but that monster is in the other room, it's dormant. And I get to travel a lot lighter. And so when I'm with my family, or if one of those women I talked about ever walked into a meeting called Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have to say, Chris, I gotta get out of here. I don't have to do that. And the people I owed money to, I paid back. So, I get to walk light and free in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I'm gonna take a break and bring Chris up. Yep. Okay, thanks, guys. All right.